You are listening to Church of the Oaks podcast, where we exist to send disciple makers of Jesus by being disciple makers of Jesus. For more information about our church, such as service times, upcoming events, or how to join a group, please visit us at churchoftheoaks.com. It's also a time we uh, dismiss our kids, their own time worship. And so uh, I, want us, I want our church to let our, our kids know how much we care about them. Can you just make some noise for our kids? Like, let them know, like, come on. It's one of my favorite parts about getting to be past here is like sometimes I get to be in the back during kids dismissal. And like all these little, these little kids are just running by me. They like, don't care about me at all. But like if I get the handout for a high five, I get a couple. Um, but it's just, there's something about that, like representing like our, our heart for, for our city. So I'm so thankful for our band and uh, our team just for leading us so well this, this morning. Um, we've been in a series called The Whole Story uh, for this past semester and for the, it'll be for the remainder of this semester as well. We'll be wrapping it up in, in June. And we've, we've, we've set out to cover the, the, full, the, the full trajectory of the story of God's work. The, the full trajectory of the story of God um, setting about a plan to save the world and then seeing that plan coming to fruition. Uh, these past few weeks, we've, we've continued with that, um, and if you haven't been uh, in, in town or you hadn't like, checked the live stream or whatever, there's some of those that I, th- I really want you to go back and look at, like, like listen to. There's, there's some pivotal things that we've covered the last few weeks that um, are huge for the trajectory of this, this story. So sometime this week or next week or whatever, maybe go back and catch up on the ones that you've missed. If you're new, if it's your very first week here, uh, all those are online. You can go back and you can kind of catch up with us if, if you, uh, you want to do that. And so the, the, the story goes, and the whole intent of this thing is that in the beginning, God had a plan to save, save the world through the sacrifice of his son. That's the presupposition that we start with when we come to, come to the scripture, come to this series. When we come to a time like this, we come up with a presupposition that from the beginning, God set a plan in motion to save the world through the sacrifice of his son. We saw the plan like set out, like, like stated and, and, and hinted at from the garden, like identified clearly through Abraham and confirmed through Isaac and Jacob, Moses, we saw like the, the tabernacle as a symbol, like a, a, a system, a way for God to draw near to his people. And a couple of weeks ago, and a lot of you missed this one, we saw like the, the temple finished and the presence of the Lord entering that temple. So people could come and draw near. And we talked about it repeatedly that those things were not the end. They were just a shadow of what was to come. But we've seen God like slowly, like bringing about this plan to reconcile a people reconcile his people back to himself so that anybody who wants to have a relationship with him can draw near again. But as you go through, you see these, these passages sometimes that, that pull back the veil more and more of what God is doing. This morning we hit one of those passages, one of the passages in the Old Testament that um, almost supersedes all others in its clarity of what God was bringing about, of what the plan actually was. If you've missed the last few weeks, we studied David, we, saw, we studied Solomon, we saw the completion of the temple, we saw the kingdom of Israel fracture and split, and we saw things go from bad to worse. And then as, as in that season of, that moment of fracture, God begins to speak to his people through his prophets. One of the most uh, like preeminent prophets was the prophet Isaiah. 
Now, Isaiah is an interesting uh, prophet, but it's also an interesting book. And if you'll give me, let me give you a little bit of uh, backstory on some of the complexity of this. One of the, the issues with the book of Isaiah is that it claims to be written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. But it makes claims that are so dead on accurate that like for hundreds of years uh, since, thousands of years since, people have been trying to disprove the validity of, of the book of Isaiah as a way to disprove the validity of Jesus. Because if what God did was bring about a plan from the very beginning to save the world to the sacrifice of his son, called his shot 700 years before his son was born, then it gets really difficult to just push Jesus away. In 1947, there was a little boy um, exploring uh, an area that's kind of south of Jerusalem, a little southwest of Jericho down by the Dead Sea. He's a little shepherd kid. He's like 14, 15 years old, doing what little boys do when they're walking around uh, by themselves, just chunking rocks. Like, so I was, I was there in this area, like uh, I was there this past summer and it's, there ain't nothing but rocks, all right? And so if you're a 14 year old, all there is to do is throw rocks at stuff, you know? Um, and there's, it's these real steep cliffs that are sticking up everywhere and, then and, and you can't climb them, you know, easily or whatever, but there's little holes, like the erosion and stuff has made these little holes, little caves all up on these cliff sides. And so this, this little boy, he's doing target practice, which is the only thing you would imagine a little boy doing, right? Picking up some rocks, seeing if I can make it and make it in one of these caves. So he's chunking rocks, he's throwing rocks in his caves, he makes a couple, makes a couple, and then he throws one through and he hears a shattering sound. He climbs up, goes and checks it out, and makes one of the most significant biblical archaeological discoveries ever. It's a discovery known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's these caves packed with perfectly preserved uh, manuscripts, copies of God's Word, chunks of God's Word dating back hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years. And one of those fragments, one of those pieces that were found was, was a complete scroll, end to end, complete scroll of the book of Isaiah that dates to 230 BC. So 230 years BC, like there's the copy of the book of Isaiah in its complete form. It's 99% accurate to what your English translation of the Bible is, is based on. It's the same thing, 2,200 years old, 200 years before Jesus was born. And you know what's in there? The words of Isaiah explaining how God was going to bring about a plan to save the world through the sacrifice of his son makes it really difficult to disregard Jesus when you have this, the words that we're going to study this morning, laying out the plan. So this morning, we're going to study a section of Isaiah's words and words inspired by God himself, written 700 years before the birth of his son, confirmed by a manuscript copy 200, 200 years older than his son. I want you to see what God was up to. I want you to see like how specific God was being. And I want you to have to wonder how in the world something this detailed could be manufactured. And if it wasn't manufactured, what that means about you and the person of Jesus. For those of you who aren't Christians yet, I'm praying that as you weigh that question, you'll, you'll not just be convinced of the authenticity of the words, but you'll convince, be convinced of the authenticity of the message. Like the be convinced that the, the message is not just for us, some people in some time, but for you this morning. 
For those of you who are Christians already, I'm, I'm praying that the Spirit moves you to worship because of what we're going to read. This is the most beautiful passage in the Bible. I pray that God moves you to all over what God was doing thousands of years ago to make opportunities for you to know him through his son. Hope it just drives you to worship. And I pray that when we take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, that these words that we're going to study this morning inform that act of celebrating, remembering what Christ has done. So I want to do something a little different. I want, we're going to preach all of Isaiah, uh, half, the back half of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53. I want you to feel the fullness of it before we start taking it apart, all right? And it goes together as a whole, so I'll read it as a whole, and then I want us to go through like we normally do and take this thing apart and mine out everything that we can out of it, okay? So let's, let's do this, just in honor of the, the magnitude of this passage. Why don't we stand together? Let's read from Isaiah 52, 13, all the way to the end of 53. Isaiah 52, 13 says this, says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred behind human resemblance, his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who's believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was much afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter and a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Father, um, God, I'm just so incredibly grateful for those words that you inspired Isaiah to, to write uh, 700 years before you accomplished them. 
And God, as we study this text this morning, my prayer is that we would not, um, we would not stop at just a cognitive understanding of the content, uh, but that you would show us, and by your spirit, that you would move us to a point of action upon that message. God, move. Send your sons, let me pray. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? First, let's, let's nail down who Isaiah is talking about, all right? And so this was debated for 100 years before Jesus, and it's been debated for 2,000 years after Jesus. Like I said earlier, like if you were trying to disprove the validity of Jesus, you have to prove that Isaiah 52 and 53 is talking about anybody else except Jesus, all right? So you got to try to do some gymnastics there to figure out who in the world this could be about except Jesus. Because if it is him, then there gives this credence, this weight that God the Father proclaiming the Son in the person of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. If you, have to, if you want to get around that fact, you got to do something with Isaiah 52 and 53. But here's what the Bible does with Isaiah 52 and 53. In Acts chapter 8, we get the Bible's response to who Isaiah is writing about. All right, It's an account of the Ethiopian eunuch riding along in his chariot. I've never been in a chariot. Sounds great. All right. And so he's riding along in the chariot. And then God tells Philip, one of his followers, to go and just be near the chariot. And when he gets near to the chariot, he hears this Ethiopian reading the words that you and I just read out loud. He's reading Isaiah 53. And so Philip asked him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? You know, Philip's on down on the ground. He's walking next to the chariot. He calls up to the guy reading Isaiah. Remember, they didn't have like printing presses. All right. Like this guy's got a scroll. There's some money invested in this thing, right? He's reading it out loud. And, and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? In Acts 8.31, this man says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to climb up in the chariot. And Philip's, you know, catching a ride now. And they're sitting there. They're talking about it. Acts 8.34 says this. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with that scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. The, the New Testament references Isaiah 52, 53 as, as prophecy, not about someone, not about certain, like something about the person of Jesus Christ. These words are about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, written 700 years before his birth, eternally relevant, even 2,000 years after his death, burial, and resurrection. These, this is monumental for us. Some of you walked in the room this morning in a really similar spot as to man in that chariot. You're interested. You're trying to figure this thing out. You're trying to put the pieces together. Maybe you've gotten around some people who seem like they have gotten the pieces together and you're trying to figure out, like, is this Jesus legit? Is there something reliable here? Because you people are talking about like trusting your lives and your eternities to him. Like, how can this be trusted? Who is this about? You're in good company. So let's do what Philip did. Let's start with Isaiah 52 and 53 and let's talk about the good news of Jesus. The, the passage is divided into five stanzas of three verses each, all right? So we just read 15 verses, five times three. Math is cool, all right? So you got five stanzas, three verses each. And theologians and people, commentators have, just, have categorized and summarized them differently. My favorite one comes from a guy named James Green. He says these stanzas show Jesus to be, one, the servant, two, the sufferer, three, the substitute, four, the sacrifice, and five, the satisfaction. 
So we're going to walk through those five stanzas. We're going to see these five things come out about the person of Jesus. So the first one is Jesus the servant. Look back at Isaiah 52, verse 13 again. It says this, behold, my servant. Now, like my servant, he shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Now, this is the fourth time in the book of Isaiah where there's a, a passage about this, this one who's going to come and be the servant. You got one in 42, you got one in 49, you got another one in 50. Yeah, there's, there's four of them, four passages in Isaiah describing the Messiah as a servant. They each explain he was going to come and serve in a way to bring God's kingdom, not just among Jews, but among the nations. It's God's heart for the nations, right? They're all across the book of Isaiah. Each one of them notes that he's going to encounter great difficulty, but right here we start finding out why, like what this difficulty is going to be, why it's supposed to be as hard as Isaiah is saying it's going to be. Saying it's going to be high and exalted, ultimately it's going to be victorious, but there's going to be this challenge, right? Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, it says his appearance was marred behind human resemblance. His form beyond that of children of mankind is pointing to this, this beating, this figurement, the marring that Jesus was going to go through. Verse 15 says, so, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall, cut their, shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they haven't heard, they understand. When he says that he's sprinkling many nations, he's pointing back to Levitical law. And like in Leviticus like 16, where it's talking about the, the, there's no forgiveness of, of sin without the shedding of blood. This servant was going to be the sacrifice that was going to cover the sins of many nations. That his blood was going to cover the sin of the world, not just from Isaiah's nation, but from many nations. If you've, if you've been a part of the, the series so far, like that, that, that phrase about the nations, about many nations, that should remind you all the way back to Abraham, where Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to the nations. It wasn't just about one people and one thing. It was about blessing the, the, the globe, like for God so loved the world. And here again, you see this reiterated over and over and over again. The Savior was going to come and be the one to serve the will of the Father to save the nations and people like you. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus spoke about himself like this. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 5 says this, as had this mind among yourselves with yours in Christ Jesus, who though is in the form of God did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as the passage in Isaiah starts off and it says this one is going to come. He's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted, but there's going to be a challenge. He's coming to serve in a way that's going to mar him, break him, disfigure him. But ultimately he will be victorious. Christians, I want to remind you this morning what he's done for you. As we take the Lord's Supper in a little while, we talk about the, the, the body of Jesus, the broken for us, the blood of Jesus poured out for us. I just want to remind you of what he's done. Yes, he was victorious, but I want to remind you of what he went through to bear our burden. Not because of what you did, by the way. Not because of how well you performed or how obedient you are or whatever, like because you cleaned yourself up, because he just loved you. Has accomplished all of this before you ever could have asked, ever done anything, before you were born. He's accomplished all of this, offered salvation to you as a gift. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, 
This is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus came to lay down his life as a servant. And that may make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't want him to do that for me. Like, I, you know, I want to show up. I want to serve. Like, I want to I earn something. Nah, he's, sorry. <laughs> he came and took the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the will of the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, willingly gave his life for people like you. As distant, as sinful, as... <laughs> Uh, as far from him as you could possibly get. He came for you. Just depends if you want to trust and believe. The second stanza, stanza continues. It, it describes Jesus as the sufferer. So if you want to take a note, the second one is Jesus is the sufferer from Isaiah 53, 1 and 3. It says this in verse 1. It says, Who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Talk about there's, some, there's something that happens here. There's more to it than just that Jesus has accomplished this. There's this point in verse one where it says like, we have to do something about believing this. It's not just something that's like applied to you. It's just like, like pushed onto you or something. There's a choice if you wanna believe this or not. Whom has believed? A lot of you are Christians in the room already. You have believed. A lot of you are in the room are not Christians yet and you are deciding if you are gonna believe in the name of Jesus. Whom has believed what he's heard? This passage goes on, it talks about repeatedly how most people will reject him. Most people will put him aside. Most people will figure out some way to dance around him to continue going their own way. But some will believe. What about you? Verse 2 says this, as he grew up before him like a young plant like a root at a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. We sing that, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There are all kinds of allusion in, to scripture just in those couple of words. And we don't have time to go through all of them. But like a couple of weeks ago, we looked at David. Look to the life of David. Now, there's a prophecy to David that, that his kingdom was going to be like forever. And that a root of Jesse, that's his dad, a root of Jesse was going to spring up and he was going to reign on the throne for all time. Some of the root of Jesse right there in Isaiah 53. It reminds us when it talks about being rejected, despised and rejected by men, it reminds us of his disciples scattering at his arrest. It reminds us of, of, of Peter denying that he even knew Jesus as Jesus stood trial. But isn't, it isn't during, just during Jesus' life that he was despised and rejected. You and I are guilty of that as well. That's who we are. We literally, you and I, we, we literally esteemed him not. We esteem a bunch of other stuff. We esteem ourselves. We esteem our desires. We esteem our plans. We esteem our gifts. We esteem the opinions of others all sometimes, and sometimes all the time, above him. We esteemed him not. It wasn't just Peter, it wasn't just the disciples, right? It wasn't just Caiaphas, it was me. I esteemed him not. I esteemed myself over him. This week, my plans and my desires and what I think, what I want, I esteemed him not. Listen, if you're not a Christian already, it's like you've, you've, you've lived your life to this point, like going your own way, like you, you've esteemed him not, like you've esteemed you and your plan and your direction. Every single one of us started that way. Every one of us in this room at one point or another was not a Christian. And we were living our lives our own way. Some of you have just kind of been indifferent. Those of us who are Christians already, we still fall back into this too. 
Sometimes we get so caught up in the things that we want to see happen and the things that we're driving towards, whether that's like, like some kind of achievement or maybe sometimes it's just comfort, maybe it's distraction, and we will, we will put anything above him that gets us what we want. I don't know what that is for you, but I know that for a lot of us, maybe coming into a new year, we look back on the year behind, we can see some ways that we have lived in a way that did not esteem our Savior and I just want to set some of those before you and just kind of maybe let the Holy Spirit work on you a little bit and say, like, what are the areas of my life where I've esteemed other things and I've despised and rejected my king? If you were and I were writing the story at this point about a people who had this opportunity to accept this great gift of salvation and love and redemption, right, but willingly kept choosing to walk away from that. If, if you and I wrote that story, we'd be done with those people. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. The story continues. In the third stanza, you see Jesus, the substitute. Verse 4 says this. It says, surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The magnitude of those verses can't be overstated. There's three things I want you to see there, all right? Three things. First, this connects directly to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Leviticus 16, God instructs his people on how to deal with their sins. So on the day of atonement, they were supposed to get, go get two goats, all right? Those two goats. And one of those goats was going to be a blood sacrifice. It was going to be sacrificed, like give its life in atonement for the people. The second... The high priest was supposed to come, like take this goat, put his hands on his head, and he was supposed to confess the sins of all the people. I don't know how you even do that, all right? He's supposed to stand there, hands on his goat's head, and one's already been killed. And this, this one, like you're confessing all of the sin of the nation, all of the people on this one goat. And this is take it out in the wilderness and let it be gone. Jesus steps into both of those roles. Is when it says that he bore our iniquities. That, that phrase scapegoat, if you ever heard like that word scapegoat, that's where that comes from. Like Jesus is literally the one who all of our iniquities are placed on. And it wasn't just sent away, but was also sacrificed. Taking the place of both of those things, both pieces that needed to be dealt with to handle your sin and my sin, all of Leviticus 16 fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Second, this is talking about your sin. Not somebody else's. It's easy to read stuff in the Bible and talk about somebody else's things and think about other people. Like, this is you and me. I just want to make this really personal for me and for you. Like, it says, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our own way, the iniquity of us all. That's what Jesus is dealing with. That's what he bore for us. That's what he took from you on himself and dealt with on the cross. This was your sin. Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for all of that sin was eternal separation from God. So when he took all of your sin, he also took all that wrath. He also took all that punishment that you and I had earned for ourselves, took it all upon himself and paid for it with his life. The gospel isn't about somebody else. It's not 
Sometimes I think about, like, I think we sometimes, we, we, we encapsulate the gospel as this, this thing that was accomplished in the past, and it doesn't have as much relevance to you today. It's like, if I trust what Jesus did back then, I'm good now. Like, no, like, this is a present reality for you and I in this room, because, like, we're talking about your sin. <laughs> Somebody's going to bear the wrath of that. Third, the passage, it, it makes it really clear that Jesus came to bear your sin. So it's, it's incredibly clear about how this is me and you. This is our iniquity, our sorrows. But it's, it's even more clear about Jesus. Third, Jesus came to bear your sin. He says, he bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came to be the suffering servant and your substitute. So let me ask you this, like, like with that reality in my life, Jesus came to be the suffering servant and to be a substitute for you, like to take your place for all that wrath, all that sin, all that distance. Like he came to take all that on himself and then pay for it. Let me ask you a question. Who's carrying your grief? Who's carrying your sorrows? Who's going to deal with your iniquities and your transgressions? Who's carrying the responsibility? Who's carrying the wrath of your sin? Because Jesus came to take that on himself and pay for it on the cross. But until you entrust him, like with your, with your life and your eternity, like you are bearing all of that your own. There is no him doing all that until you've trusted in the person of Jesus. The gifts available, the salvation is there, like the, 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 the redemption, the sacrifice has been made. But you have to trust and believe. Until you do, it. It isn't Jesus carrying that, it's you. But it doesn't have to be. You don't have to walk out of this room carrying it one day further. The fourth stanza talks about Jesus being our sacrifice. Jesus the sacrifice. Isaiah 53, verse 7. says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened on his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the people, stricken with the transgression of my people, and made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. If you're familiar with the gospel, like the, if you're familiar with the story of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, like, Think about the detail of this. 700 years before, the, like, before Jesus, all right? Like, think about the detail of this. One, it says he wouldn't defend himself, but he'd be killed willingly. Mark 15, 4 says, this is New Testament. This is what actually happened. Verse uh, 4 says, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they're bringing against you, but Jesus made no further answer. Pilate was amazed. Second thing it says, it says he was taken away by oppression and judgment. Luke 23, 13 through 25 talks about Pilate gathering together all these priests. And he, and he says, like, basically, like, you, you brought me this guy. I don't see anything to, I don't think anything, anything to condemn him for. Why don't I release for you Barabbas? Like, no, no, we don't want Barabbas. Like, we don't want, we don't want, <laughs> we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. Like, I, 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 we, wanna, we, want the, we want the thief. We want the sinner. Like, and we want you to crucify this Jesus. He's like, why would I, why would I do that? Why wouldn't I just release to you Jesus? He hasn't done anything wrong. Like, no, no, they start chanting, crucify him, crucify him. 
It's by oppression that Jesus is taken away. He says in verse 25, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Third thing, the third little detail in here, it says they, it says they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man. Matthew 27, 57 talks about after Jesus' death that there became a rich man. Verse 57 of Matthew 27. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. This rich man comes, takes the body of Jesus in verse 58, wraps it and places it in his own tomb. Rolls a stone over it. Four says that he would be guilty of no violence or deceit. Peter cites that verse in 1 Peter 2, 22, talking about how Jesus lived a sinless life and then offered that sinless life as a perfect sacrifice for people like you. 700 years before Jesus was born, God had a plan to save the world through the sacrifice of his son. Jesus willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for me and you. He didn't get caught. He didn't get tricked. He willingly went to the cross to pay for the iniquity of us all that he bore willingly. Jesus came to be the suffering servant who sacrificed himself to be your substitute. The fifth stanza, the last one. It turns and, and it describes Jesus as our satisfaction. Verse 10 says this, says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, makes intercession for the transgressors. When you get to the Gospels, you see this play out. You see Jesus beaten and mocked and scorned and despised and rejected and murdered. And you see him rise three days later victorious satisfying the just requirement of wrath for our sin. You see him rising three days later, satisfying all the requirements of the law that you and I were never going to be able to keep. You see him satisfying God's promise to bless the nations and sending his people out to go and make disciples of all nations. You see him satisfying the Father's will to save and reconcile the world to himself. You see him satisfying our need for a substitute and a savior. You see him satisfying God's desire to rescue and redeem people like you who are far from him with no hope. You see him satisfying every need and every desire of our hearts. That peace you long for, that, that, that purpose, oh my goodness, that purpose you long for, that fulfillment, that wholeness that you long for, that satisfaction is found in him. You see Jesus satisfying God's plan from the garden to reconcile a people who are ripped from him by sin. Jesus came to be the suffering servant who sacrificed himself to be your substitute, satisfying every requirement of God and every need of mankind. That's what Isaiah tells the people the Savior's going to do. And then 700 years later, they saw him do it. And 2,000 years later, you and I get to sit in a room like this and worship him for it. 
this truth, like it, like <laughs> this demands a response. Like the thing about the, like a lot of content that we consume nowadays is just to instruct. You can understand a lot of things. You can talk about a lot of things. You can talk about your opinion about this and like very little of the content that is presented to you and I anymore calls us to any kind of action. And then we come to this. And I just need you to hear, like, if without, without acting upon this, without responding to what we just talked through, um, it is of no value to you at all. You can mentally and cognitively understand it. You can mentally and cognitively agree with it. But until you decide that you're going to trust and believe and follow the person of Jesus with your life, it is not effectual for you. This is not something to mentally agree with. This is something to live by. To trust, believe, and then follow. Christians, like the fact that this was written 700 years before he was born, like we have copies of it 100 years before Jesus, like that should, that should prove to you that God knew what he was doing. That should give you an incredible sense of confidence in the gospel. That should give you an incredible sense of peace, like that, that this didn't happen, this wasn't happenstance, like God was bringing this about for people like you to draw near to him for this life and for eternity. This should draw you to worship. Think about the magnitude of what God did to reconcile you back to himself. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, um, you're not going to be called to give your life an atonement for anybody anytime soon, all right? But, like, but Christ did call you to respond to this. Now, God, like the, the Father's intent was for you to, not to just hear it, but to hear and believe, to trust it with your life, like with your sin, to trust Jesus to be the one who bears your iniquities and paid for that on the cross. The intent is for you to respond in trust, belief, and obedience. Back up in that chariot in the book of Acts, remember that guy? Philip climbs up in the chariot and the man asks him to help understand the very things they've talked through today. He says he starts with Isaiah 53 explaining the good news of Jesus. And while they talked, something happened in that man's heart, in that man's mind. As, as, as Philip sat there and explained, okay, so this is what the prophet was explaining, that this, this Savior was supposed to do these five things, and it's showing him all of these passages and this, this way that he was fulfilling this stuff, and then shows the way that, that Jesus actually accomplished it, offered himself as a gift. Something happened in that Ethiopian. He came to believe he came to believe that this was true, like this actually transpired, that the person that was written about in Acts 53 is the person who died on a cross in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like came to believe it. He was convinced. And that being convinced called him to a point of response. He wanted to follow what Jesus told him to do. He didn't just want to mentally agree with it. In Acts 8, 36, it says this, it says, they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This guy heard the gospel, heard the truths of what God had done from the very beginning, saw how it was relevant to him, began to believe and like trust in the person of Jesus, and then wanted to walk that obedience out in a public profession of faith right there in the water. Some of you find yourselves in the same place as this guy this morning. You've heard the good news of Jesus, maybe for the first time this morning, but I doubt it. 
And God's been at work on you, drawing you to himself and saying like, this is true. Like you gotta come to the point that you decide if you wanna follow this and trust it or not, like if you wanna walk in obedience to me or, or not, if you're gonna carry the iniquity or if you're gonna let me carry it. Will you trust him and believe? That's the only question I'd left for you. Like, will you trust him and believe or will you walk out of here carrying your iniquity yourself? Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're listening to me and you know that you're not a Christian, you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, maybe you've been investigating, you've been trying to figure it out. I just want to add, like, will you believe in your heart that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that? Like, he actually died on the cross for you, wants to bear your iniquity, like, wants to save you, like, Will you trust and believe? In just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to put that, that into action. Some of you are sitting here and you're like, I do believe. I've had questions. I've been walking through stuff. I've been talking with people. I've, 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 it's been a long time coming, but I, I, I do, I believe. Well, I want to press you a little bit further because the Ethiopian like, didn't stop at just a mental agreement, like just didn't start with a heart belief. And Romans 10, 9 calls you not just a confession, like internally, but also externally. I want to challenge you on that. In just a little bit, when, we, when our band comes and leads us, we're going to have some people back there in the back. We call them our next steps team. I want to challenge you to go find one of those people back there and just say, hey, listen, like I've, it's been a long time coming, but I, I want to believe in Jesus. Can we, can we talk? Can we pray together? And you may not know them at all, but they know Jesus in the same way that you're wanting to know Jesus. So go back and talk about that. Some of you came in with a friend. Somebody invited you and like, you know that they're following Jesus. Like you can take them by the hand, like, hey, we got to talk about that. Like, I, I, I want to believe in, I want to I trust him, I want to follow him. I want to push you to some external action the same way we see in Acts 8. Because there's, there's a whole lot of difference between having this, this moment of saying, okay, I've, I've, I've got a, a heart, heart thing going on to that moving to be external. Later, a lot of you are going to come to a point where you want to fall in the same act of obedience that that Ethiopian did, where he said, not only that, not only does tell somebody, like I want to follow through in the way that Jesus called me to, to make my faith public through baptism. I've been talking to a bunch of you folks about baptism lately, and it's going to be an exciting semester getting to see you step into the water the same way he did. Don't let another moment pass. Like this is the moment. Like Jesus said to Thomas, one of his disciples after his resurrection, who like was having the hardest time believing, Jesus comes face to face with him and says, don't disbelieve, but believe. That's Jesus' words to you this morning. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Some of you believed already, but there's still some action to, some, some actions to, to take. Some of you, like, your next step is baptism. You've been wrestling with it for a while. Like, you're seeing in the, in the passage, like, what, man, what are you waiting on? <laughs> this guy's, like, still rolling down the, down the road in the chariot. He haven't got out of the thing yet. And he's like, let's get this done, man. Let's go. I want, I want people to know. What are you waiting on? Some of you have somebody that you're praying for to be saved, like, and, and you've, you're just wrestling with that. Like next step is back there for you. Like you go talk to somebody and say like, hey, I'm, I'm wrestling with this. Like, I, would you pray with me for my friend to trust Jesus in the way that I've trusted Jesus? Go talk to them about that. Some of you have been denying Christ and the way you've been living life. You've been esteeming a whole bunch of other stuff. You need to do some work about that. Go talk with somebody about that. Take a friend and go talk to them about it. Come up here in the front and kneel and just pray over those things and say, like just confess some sin. Move to action. For some of you, like God's heart for the nations in verse 15 will not let you go. 
And you're being called to go to the nations, whether here or around the world. You go talk to somebody about that. Make that, like, just make that statement, make that declaration. I think God's calling me to the nations. Would you pray for me about what that looks like? Some of you are feeling called into full-time ministry or whatever. Like, some of you are called to be a step up as group leaders. There's, there's actions that I think God is calling all of us into in light of who he is and what he's done for us. And my frustration is when, when I can see or sense the spirit of God calling his people onto the team to do the work of the kingdom. And they fail to take that first step of action. They feel moved, they feel inspired, they feel changed and life doesn't change. Those who have entrusted in Jesus are people of action. We're a people of action who believe and follow. What's he calling you to do this morning? Gospel calls for response. Christ calls for response to what he's done. So let's answer him this morning. Just a moment, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna stand. Some of you, your, your, your action, your response, like you just need to open your heart to worship the Lord. Like we're gonna take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Like you need to be ready for that. Even as we, some of you, like if you have kids in kids ministry, your action is gonna be grabbing your kid. All right, and that's fine. But next step team's gonna be back there against that back wall. And if it's talking with them about salvation, if it's talking with them about just a, a need in your heart and you want to need somebody to pray, pray Christ over what's going on with you, if you want to come and confess sin, like if you want to take a friend and go have a, like, what are you supposed to do now? Let's respond. I want to pray for you. You respond how you feel, led. Let's pray. Father, we covered a lot today. We can't, I don't think we can lay the gospel out any more fully than you laid it out, Isaiah 52 and 53. God, I'm so grateful that Jesus came to be a servant of all, even somebody like me. Thankful that Jesus came to be my substitute, my sacrifice. incredibly grateful for the satisfaction that I've found in him. And I pray for my friends in the room who aren't Christians yet. I pray that they would find that same satisfaction in him, that fullness of him. I pray this moment that you'd move them to the action of trusting and believing in your son for their salvation. God save souls. I also pray for my friends in the room who have trusted you already, but maybe some stuff's gotten in the way. There's some steps left to take. God, Move us to action. Chariot's still in motion, God. Move us to action. Why not me? God, give us the boldness to respond, not just to feel. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. For more sermons like this, you can give us a follow at Spotify or Apple Music. If you want more information about our church, you can check us out at churchattheoaks.com. Church, you are sent.